Hey, let's uh, open our Bibles and, and rejoin this story of Daniel that we have been tracking these, these past many weeks. Tenth uh, Sunday in a row that we've, we've been taking a look at the life of Daniel. You might recall, after initially going through kind of in order, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and so on and so forth, uh, we skipped ahead a few weeks ago. And that's because the second half of the book of Daniel catalogs some of the visions that the prophet Daniel had. And, and I wanted us to digest them chronologically in the order they took place within his lifetime. And so we have skipped ahead. Today we're going to skip back and we're going to be in Daniel chapter 5. Again, this is because we're, we're proceeding through these events in the chronological order that they took place historically rather than in the way they're cataloged in scripture. So we're going to be in Daniel chapter 5. Let me set the scene for you. 10 or 11 years or so have passed since the vision of the goat and the ram that we discussed last Sunday. The story we're about to read is one of these from Daniel that we can actually place very, very precisely in historical uh, secular history. The year is now 539 BC. I can actually do better than that for you. It's October of 539 BC. And Daniel at that point is about 80 years old. We've been following this guy since he was a junior high. And he's now 80 years old. And yes, he is still taking what they're given because he's working for a living. Working for the Babylonian government. Belshazzar is the ruling king in Babylon. You'll remember his name from the story we looked at last week. And still he is ruling in the city of Babylon and his father is, is managing the outer reaches of the empire. But his, his father isn't doing quite so well. The united forces of the Medes and the Persians have eaten away at the eastern part of the Babylonian empire and they are getting closer and closer to the city of Babylon itself. And although it would seem that Daniel is still uh, on retainer with King Belshazzar, he certainly doesn't have the close relationship with Belshazzar that he used to have with Nebuchadnezzar. Remember the many stories we, we read through about Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar? They had an, an odd relationship, didn't they? They never really came down on the same side of the issue, but I don't think it would be a stretch to say that at certain moments, they were, they were almost friends. There was certainly a very real mutual respect there. There was a tenderness in times between them, but Belshazzar doesn't have that with Daniel. As a matter of fact, Belshazzar doesn't even seem to know who Daniel is. Nebuchadnezzar used to trust Daniel, and he used to call on Daniel when he got himself into sticky situations, which he did more than a handful of times. But as we'll see today, Belshazzar didn't have that kind of a relationship with Daniel. Now, in the historical sense, this is Babylon, and Babylon is Babylon. This is the same empire that it always has been. But one thing that I'm going to ask you to notice today is that it really feels like things have changed. We've already explored in great detail the spiritual ruin that Nebuchadnezzar's empire represented. Belshazzar is going to introduce us to a whole new level of ruin. So the story begins with King Belshazzar doing what we would expect an immature, foolish king to do when his empire is crumbling and foreign threats are getting closer and closer to the capital city. But most importantly, dad's out of town. So he throws a party. 
And what a party he threw. What a party he threw. Let me show you how it's described, reading from Daniel chapter 5 and verse 1. Many years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. So they brought these gold cups taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. And while they drank from them, they praised their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. I'm sure there were plenty of lavish parties in the palace in ancient Babylon, but Daniel seems to want us to understand that this party was a a bit different. First, he emphasizes that Belshazzar is drinking. Now, there's nothing unusual about, the ancient, about that. The ancient people drank wine with most of their meals more often than they drank water because, frankly, it was a safer drink to drink in those days than water that could easily be impure. But the inference in this story, in the passage I read and throughout the rest of the chapter, is that Belshazzar is drinking a lot of wine. He's drunk to the point of delirium. More importantly here is the reference to the artifacts from the Jerusalem temple. If you've tracked with us through the story, you might recall that 65 years earlier, when when Daniel had been taken captive in Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar had stolen some of the artifacts from the temple there. And then about 15 years after that, the Babylonians returned to Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple entirely and took even more of the temple treasures, including some of these cups and serving goblets that are being referenced in this story. Those those artifacts came back to Babylon. Apparently, most of the loot from the Jerusalem temple had actually been preserved in Babylon. can assume with relative certainty that they would have been placed in Babylonian shrines and temples to false gods. Kind of there is a symbol of the victory of the Babylonian gods over the God of the Jews. And there they've been. But Belshazzar now says, you know, we're going to have a big game of beer pong and I'd like to use those goblets. We're going to use them for drinking at my party. We're going to do all of that. And not only are they using these sacred items to get drunk, the whole time they're doing it, they're raising their glasses and offering up toasts to the handmade idols that surround them. And Daniel, I think, really wants us to be stricken at the irony here. An evil, ruinous king using God's sacred artifacts to praise idols. Can I give you a spoiler alert? This is not going to go well for Belshazzar. Daniel is trying to demonstrate a really important lesson here. And I think the lesson is this. Beware the kingdom that mocks the things of God. Beware the kingdom that mocks the things of God. If if I could preach in the King James, I might have said, Woe be unto the kingdom that mocks the things of God. You got to look out when the kingdom starts mocking the things of God. Again, I just feel like this is different than Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. Now, I'm not trying to revise history here. We know Nebuchadnezzar wasn't a good guy, and he sure wasn't a godly guy. He had a lot more to do with the ruin than the righteousness that we've been talking about, right? But at least he recognized the power of God. 
Now, though, Babylon is being ruled by a king who thinks godliness is something to be made fun of. And no doubt, Daniel is outraged. And I think he wants us to share in his outrage. But do we? Do we share in Daniel's surprise, in being aghast, in being outraged at the things we see when we encounter them? Do we share Daniel's outrage when politicians who act nothing like Jesus are so quick to use a photo op in front of a church in order to buy some votes? Do we share Daniel's outrage when we hear godless people who know nothing of the real power of prayer, but they're quick to virtue signal by posting on social media that they're sending thoughts and prayers to the victims of the latest tragedy? Do we share in Daniel's outrage when we encounter a culture that treats righteous, godly virtue Things like financial integrity and sexual purity and forgiveness over vengeance treats things like that as a sign of weakness and traits to be ridiculed. Taking the sacred artifacts and using them to give honor to the idols. Do we share Daniel's outrage? These are the hallmarks of a kingdom that mocks the things of God. And this is the way of our world, I think. The kingdoms of our world make themselves drunk with sin as they gulp from our sacred goblet, making a mockery of what God has called holy. Beware the kingdom that mocks the things of God. You're like, I got up early for this. (laughs) Oh, that's why it's so important for us, just like Daniel, to resist the temptation to excuse the kingdoms of this world and to overlook their sinfulness, just because maybe like Nebuchadnezzar did, they might tolerate righteousness and they might say a few nice things about it from time to time. Maybe they even throw righteousness a bone and and make a show of honoring godly people like Daniel, you know, when it's politically expedient to do so. But don't fall for it. Don't take the bait. Don't compromise your own witness to godly righteousness For the sake of a kingdom that you think, well, it might not be perfect, but it's not quite as bad as it could be. Those kinds of kingdoms inevitably devolve into places where the things of God are made a mockery. So do what Daniel did. Serve Nebuchadnezzar with integrity, but don't mistake him for a friend because his kingdom is only the first step on the way to Belshazzar. So Belshazzar's party goes on late into the night, but suddenly in the midst of this this raucous party, the king gasps in terror because he sees something that, that terrifies him. He sees a disembodied human hand writing with its finger on one of the walls. Now, the story is a little unclear as to whether everybody could see the hand or maybe it was just Belshazzar and now he's screaming and pointing and nobody can figure out exactly what's going on. Maybe they think he's just finally lost it. He's too drunk to even know. But whatever is going on, it stops the party like this. And then we begin the all too familiar pattern in the book of Daniel. The king calls for his wise men to interpret the the mystery, but they can't. 
Belshazzar, as I said, doesn't even really seem to know who Daniel is, but his mommy helps out. The queen mother says, you know, there used to be a guy who could do this kind of thing for the kings that came before you. And she summons Daniel. Daniel arrives and he assesses the situation. Uh, can you imagine Daniel getting out of bed late at night, <laughs> arriving in the scene? What did you need? My beeper went off. I've been trying to sleep here. What's going Oh my goodness, what have you guys been doing? He arrives and he assesses the situation and Belshazzar offers Daniel great rewards if he can successfully interpret the meaning of the writing on the wall. Do you remember, do you remember when Daniel used to speak to Nebuchadnezzar in moments like this? Do you remember how humble and how polite Daniel typically was? in moments like this, when he was dealing with Nebuchadnezzar? Yeah, not this time. First, he says, Belshazzar, you can keep your rewards. I'm not interested. And then he gives him a stern lecture, a lecture about the lessons that his predecessor Nebuchadnezzar had learned. He tells him the story of Nebuchadnezzar's bout with insanity. And he tells him how even the mighty Nebuchadnezzar had learned to be humble before God. And then he says this, I'm going to read to you from Verse 22, you are his successor, O Belshazzar, and you knew all of this, yet you have not humbled yourself, for you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven and have had these cups from his temple brought before you, you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all. But you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. Woo! Now remember, Belshazzar isn't the new guy in town, right? He's been ruling Babylon for more than 10 years. Daniel knows who Belshazzar is. Belshazzar doesn't know who Daniel is. But Daniel knows who Belshazzar is. His sins are not born out of youthful zeal or lack of experience. His sins are telltale emblems of his character. And so again, I just feel like I can't emphasize this enough. This is different. This is different than what we've seen before. This is a different kingdom than it was under Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, as we said, was not a godly man. He wasn't the good guy in any of the stories that Daniel told, but neither was he beyond the reaches of God's grace. Because each time God tried to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention, Nebuchadnezzar listened. And he honored God after the dream of the giant statue. And he honored God after the showdown at the fiery furnace. And he honored God after being humbled by insanity. Belshazzar, on the other hand, despite having only a fraction of Nebuchadnezzar's earthly might and power, was unwilling to even acknowledge the authority of God, much less honor him. One more spoiler alert. It's really the same spoiler alert, but I feel like I need to say it again. Things are not going to go well for Belshazzar. Beware the kingdom that mocks the things of God and disregards his authority over earthly things. It reminds me of the old joke 
about the Navy ship navigating through the dark night when the signalman sees a light on the horizon. And so the captain gets on the radio to alert this oncoming ship. The captain says, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. He waits a moment and the reply comes back on the radio. Negative, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Captain's a little upset by that. And he says, uh, this is Captain Johnson of the United States Navy. Please identify yourself. And the reply comes back kind of sheepishly. This is Petty Officer Third Class Smith. And I say again, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Captain's very angry now, so he grabs the radio one more time and says, Son, I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That's 15 degrees north. Countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. I'm on the bridge of the largest battleship in the Atlantic fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. Now, who exactly do you think you are? The radio crackles and comes back. Sir, I just work at this lighthouse, but it's your call. <laughs> Sometimes the biggest, most powerful people in our world have a tendency to forget that there's somebody even bigger and more powerful than they are. Someone whose power and authority they could never match. <laughs> Beware the kingdom that disregards God's authority over the things of this earth. So what did the writing on the wall say? Actually, it wasn't much of a mystery. There were four words written on the wall, and they were common words in the Aramaic language that probably everybody in that room spoke. The wise men would have actually been able to read the words and recognize them, but it seems that they, what they couldn't figure out is the significance of the words. And that's where Daniel came in. Reading to you now from verse 25. Daniel is speaking. This is the message that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This is what these words mean. Mene means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed. You have been weighed on the balances and have not measured up. Parson means divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was dressed in purple robes, a gold chain was hung around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But that very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed. History tells us that the armies of Persia were actually encamped just outside the city that night, and they diverted the waters from the canals that flowed under the walls into Babylon, they marched through those dry riverbeds and they took the city without a fight. And upon their arrival, Belshazzar was captured and executed, likely still drunk from the evening's party. When God's judgment comes, it often comes swiftly. Now remember, more than 60 years earlier, Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream that foretold the end of the Babylonian Empire. Remember the statue, and you, O king, are the head of gold, but after you is coming another empire, the silver arms. 
And what that means, 60 years ago, that dream had, had, had been given to Nebuchadnezzar. 60 years ago, Daniel had interpreted that dream. So for 60 years, Daniel has been living a life of righteousness in the midst of a kingdom of spiritual room. For 60 years, Daniel has been serving at the pleasure of kings who slaughtered the people of God. For 60 years, Daniel has known that one day the kingdom that he was working in would come to an end and the restoration of God's people could begin. But did things ever start to look better as time went on? For 60 years, did things get better and better and better? Or did they get worse and worse and worse? My goodness! In the olden days, at least the king would say a few nice things about God from time to time. But have you seen the new guy? Look, he's over there surrounded by concubines, practically passed out drunk in one of the chalices from God's altar. Let me ask you this. You ever feel like Daniel? You ever feel like you've been living your life based on a promise from God? And you really, really, really want to believe that it's true. But everything around you that you can see and hear is screaming. It's not true. It's not true. Have you ever wondered how many more days you could possibly wake up and go to work one more time in the kingdom of ruin? Do you know the discouragement of believing for breakthrough? When the only evidence you can see is that evil is prospering and things are getting worse, not better. The world has a saying for moments like that. Moments when we want to believe for the best, despite the mounting overwhelming evidence that what's really happening is the worst. You know what the world says in moments like that. They say, stop your wishful thinking. Face up to reality. You gotta just read the writing on the wall. You've got to read the writing on the wall. Do you hear the irony in that? Do you hear the irony in that statement? You've got to read the writing on the wall. The world says that it says, give up hope. Read the writing on the wall. But here we are at the origin point of that story. Read the writing on the wall. Did you hear the story? What does the writing on the wall say? The writing on the wall says that judgment and change and breakthrough for the people of God is coming more quickly than you can imagine. So yeah, read the writing on the wall. Read the writing on the wall and hold on a little longer. Read the writing on the wall and serve God faithfully. Read the writing on the wall and testify to the goodness of God. Read the writing on the wall and know that kingdoms and strongholds are sometimes destroyed overnight. Some people might look at the Hendersons here and say, guys, I mean, come on. You've done your piece. You've done your work and it's been great, but read the writing on the wall. That country's not getting any better and there's there's no chance that you're gonna be able to help them anymore. Read the writing on the wall. It's time for you to move on and do something different. You know what? 
I didn't hear that in their testimony today. And I know them well enough to know that it's because they have read the writing on the wall. They have read the writing on the wall. And they know that breakthrough's on the way. You still praying for that lost loved one? That prodigal in your life that you're wrestling with? We'll read the writing on the wall. Does it feel hopeless? Walk up to that wall and read the writing again because breakthrough is on the way. Kingdoms are going to crumble. Wondering if it's time to finally give up on your marriage? Read the writing on the wall. Read the writing on the wall. The evil strongholds that have beset you are, are, are coming into judgment. Read the writing on the wall. You feel overwhelmed by evil and ruin in the world around you. You feel like things are never going to get any better, that all of this pie-in-the-sky stuff that all these Christians are talking about is just make-believe, that the world is going to hell and it's going there quickly and you're tired of it. We'll read the writing on the wall. The writing on the wall says that God's kingdom is poised for a breakthrough. The writing on the wall says the worlds we live in, the kingdoms that we serve under, these kingdoms aren't going to last in a twinkling of an eye, in just a moment that you never would have known, even if you'd been told. Breakthrough's on the way. Read the writing on the wall. It's a hard story. It's a hard story to receive, isn't it? It's a hard story to hear. Can I tell you this? It was a hard, it was a hard sermon to prepare. Where's the encouragement, Lord? Where's the encouragement? Where's the good news? Isn't that what we do? We proclaim good news. But I feel like the Holy Spirit is saying to us, read the writing on the wall. So the next time the enemy invites you to be discouraged, the next time the powers of evil invite you to give up, you tell them, no, I've read the writing on the wall. Mene, mene, tackle, parse. God's kingdom will prevail. We pray. Father, whew. living a godly, righteous life in a world of spiritual ruin is hard. And there's times, Lord, when we, we, we're, we're just so tired. We're just so tired because we feel like it's never going to end. We feel like we've spent our lifetimes serving this, this kingdom that's but a faint memory in our hearts somehow. But our reality has been ruined. And there were maybe moments when we thought, like, okay, we can do this. We can, we, you know, things are going to get better. Things are going to get better. But man, I, I hear the story of Daniel. I picture this man at 80 years old and evaluating from a human perspective. They never got better. They never got better. Lord, many in this room would say, God, it's not pride. It's, it's just it's what we've tried. We've tried to serve you all of our lives. We've tried to be a witness for your kingdom, for the love and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet all the world does is mock you. 
all the world does is fall over in spiritual drunkenness. What are we going to do, Lord? Father, by even the most difficult lessons in your word, you encourage your people. Would you encourage us today? By even the most difficult lessons in Scripture, we, the people of your Spirit, find peace. Would you give us your peace today? And yes, Lord, even we are strengthened. And so would you help us to read the writing on the wall, but Lord, would you help us to read it not as the magicians or the astrologers tried to do so with confusion? Would you help us not to read it as as Belshazzar tried with fear and with trembling? Would you help us to read it as Daniel did and recognize that your kingdom will prevail? Many of us know Daniel's story. We're going to turn the page and read about even some more trials. But the glimmer of hope is going to grow brighter and brighter and brighter because redemption is on the way. Lord, would you cause the light of your hope to grow brighter and brighter and brighter in the hearts of your people today in the full knowledge that no matter how dark the ruinous ways of evil get in Downers Grove or in Haiti or anywhere else no matter how dark it is redemption is on the way the kingdoms of this world have been measured and they have been found wanting they have been weighed and they have not measured up. Their days are numbered. And redemption is on the way. Let us live in that assurance, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.